Sadie, did you hear the story and the news from the Hubble Space Telescope the other day about the new star that was discovered? I did, but I would love for you to tell us that story. It's so cool. So this is quite incredible. So we have detected the furthest star yet away from the Earth using the Hubble Space Telescope. And of course, everybody's going crazy about James Webb, the new telescope, but Hubble has still got some aces up its sleeve. Um, and this star, it, it's called Arendelle. I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, but I'm not 100% sure. The light that we're now seeing from it left the star 12.9 billion years ago. So what what made it so that they could, I mean, this is the furthest they'd ever seen. How did they right. achieve this? Well, this is the crazy thing. It's all to do with gravitational lenses. So the light from the star was literally bent by other galaxies so it could wend its way to Earth. So these galaxies, and this is whole galaxies, we're not just talking about stars or planets, whole galaxies were behaving like an intergalactic lens to get that light to us. Well, what I love is actually how these telescopes work together. I know. That they, yes. add, you know, they they all bring different parts of the story. So we'll see what James Webb has to say about this. I, so yes, I I suspect no matter what Hubble can do, James Webb can probably do better at some point. But in the meantime, this is pretty awesome. Well, telescope competitions may be appropriate <laughs> for today's episode. Yes, but I, I've been yes. looking at something a little slower paced. Okay, but slow it. but steady, and that is the dress rehearsal for the Artemis moon rocket. So this of is the course. rocket that is going to, in a few months, hopefully, is going to actually launch from Earth, go to the moon, around the moon, and back. And <laughs> I mean, and actually, we have not done that in a long time. And so really just testing the whole entire system. And so it's out at the pad. And this test is not to fuel it up and fire an engine and see if it works. They've tested all the engines previously to this, mm -hmm. but it's actually the fueling process itself. Right. Which is really complicated because I mean, there are... There it's are not like, like going to the gas station. I, I'm guessing it's a little bit more complex than that. Well, it is, it is pretty tricky. There, There is, um, they, they fuel oxygen first and there are almost 200,000 gallons of oxygen <laughs> at, I'm going to round it off, minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. okay. Yeah, you've so gotta, it's really yeah, cold. You've got to get that Fahrenheit versus centigrade right here. And they literally have to, like, just like you kind of pre-warm your coffee cup, they have to pre-chill the tank mm -hmm. that it goes into. So it gets cold enough to then fill up the tank faster and faster. So they got that far. They, they actually loaded the oxygen. And then when they got to the hydrogen test, they realized that they couldn't open a vent valve that they needed to verify could be opened. Right. And so it was late in the day and they decided to call off the test. And, and this is like a series of, okay, we're going, going, going. Let's stop. Now we have to look at something, something not right. But that's exactly... What this, this test is why is we for. do this, right? This is how we. This is why we do this, so we can have a successful mission. Exactly, so, and people are know, learning a lot too. If I didn't know better, I'd think that you might be a bit of a rocket geek, Katie. I do love rockets very much. I'm Katie Coleman. I'm Andrew Maynard. Welcome to Mission Interplanetary. For today's show, we're doing something a little different. We're having a debate. Mars versus Venus, and where should we invest? Well, okay, let's we could set the stage for this little debate, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, I'm picturing a boxing ring, right? And a right. nonviolent conflict that involves the throwing of intellectual barbs with facts, okay? With Venus in one corner or Venus advocates and Mars in the other corner. And of course, I and I, you know, I'm dying to ask you now who you're supporting, but I'm not because we're going to get to that in the program. 
So before we have the fight, should we fight about our weekly obsessions? Yes. So what do you think is coming this week, Katie? I am obsessed this week with virtual reality. Oh, yes. Tell me more. Andrew, I went back to Houston Mm. and I was just going to have a tour around the Space Center. And then they asked me if I wanted to go to the International Space Station. I mean, who knew? Having a few minutes, I guess. Why not? And I needed an hour, they said. And I had an hour. It was, Andrew, It's a it was a virtual reality experience yeah, that, that was makes filmed yeah. on board the space station itself, both inside mm-hmm. and outside. And oh, then wow. Put outside together. as well. Right. Exactly. And it was, it was simply astonishing. I mean, where, you know, I walked in and, and you can actually, in this case, walk through the walls of the space station. That was a little bit foreign <laughs> to me, right. where you didn't have to kind of go through the modules to get from one to the other. I mean, it, it took a lot to make that first step out I into bet. space. Okay. I bet. <laughs> but, but I but, did. So, but you're experiencing this as an astronaut. I mean, was it really that good compared to reality? It, it really was. I would suddenly be right next to the dining room table where we would all eat dinner. And huh. Christina Cook is like slicing up apples and tossing them to her friend. But but more than that, I mean, there's they, they, they captured the moment when she took her new crew. They had just, you know, come on board with the Soyuz. And, it just said, and you can hear her voice saying, okay, we're going to start the tour here in Node 1. And they, they come through the tunnel. They fly through the tunnel. They come out in our node one. And and you can tell this is actually their first sight of their new home. Wow, right. And I remembered that moment. But in the, in the sights outside, it was just, I mean, it really felt like that view of the earth that that we had. It's incredible. So but, I've, I've got to ask, so is this something anybody can experience or is this what they do just for the Katie Coleman's of the world? Well... <laughs> Um, it, it turns out to be something that anyone who is in a city where this experience is playing, mm-hmm. which right now is just Houston, but I understand we'll move on to other cities. I mean, it's an, it's a project from the the National Lab, the International right. Space Station National Lab, and uh, and NASA, and it is a gift. I mean, I, I I actually dragged so many people to this, including I was talking to Charlie Duke, Apollo sixteen astronaut, describing mm-hmm. this to him. He goes, you know, I've got a few hours before we go. I might just go there because. You know, one of the things that I really long to do is to bring everybody to space. And in so many ways, this does that for people. So let's go on to your obsession. Yeah, my my obsession sounds so mundane compared to this. This is something this is this is something really little and really (laughs) trivial. Okay, (laughs) yours are never mundane. Okay, Andrew. (laughs) But this is something that's been bugging me for literally years and years. I've got to ask you, Katie. Okay. Do you drink Ovaltine? I have. I'm going to rate it boring. Yeah, well, so I only yeah. did it I, once you or know, twice. It, it's a very, very British malty, milky drink that, that you typically drink at bedtime. Anyway, I'm not interested in the taste of it. I'm interested in the physics. Of course you are. Of course. I've got a demonstration here. So I've, I've actually prepared a steaming hot cup of milk just for this. Okay. Um, and this is the thing that has been bugging me for years. So you get a hot cup of milk and you put a spoon in it and you stir it around and you have a sound like this. Can you hear that? It's a sort of ringing sound. So I'm verifying that Andrew is holding up a blue coffee cup. I can't see what's in it, but there's a ringing sound. Trust me, there's milk in there. Okay, now I've got my pot of Ovaltine and I'm going to put my spoonfuls of of giant pot of Ovaltine. I drink a lot of Ovaltine. This is what I drink at about three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep. 
Okay, so I've got the melt. Now listen to this. Ovaltine is in there. Listen to the sound of this cup. Can you hear Ooh. a difference? Yes. It utterly changes the sonic signature of the drink. Now, I'm not quite sure anybody's done any research on sonic signatures of drinks, but if they do, they should be researching Ovaltine. And if anybody out there knows why Ovaltine sounds different once the powder's in the milk, drop us a line. I'd love to know. So, you guys, you can hear Andrew reaching out for help. Let's help Andrew. <laughs> we need you. Acoustic people, physics people, Ovaltine people. We need you. You know, having said that, enough about Ovaltine. We ought to get back to the show and our big question of this week, which is Mars or Venus? Well, of course, these planets are named after the Roman god of war and the goddess of love, respectively. Who, of course, had a long and illicit affair. I mean, Andrew, how do you know that? I mean, were you there? Okay, well, <laughs> assuming that to be true, um, it is said that the two moons of Mars meaning Phobos and Deimos, are actually named after their children. So the association of these two planets with one another goes back a very long time. And like love and war, they're often thought of as opposites. For much of the space age, Mars has been our fixation. Humans have launched around 50 missions to the Red Planet. Most recently, last year's rovers from NASA and China, with several more missions already in the works. But now, Venus has been getting some newfound attention. Last year, NASA announced two new missions to Venus and others by the European Space Agency, Russia and India are also in development. If you're an extremely online space nerd, you might know there's a good-natured debate over which planet we should focus our exploration resources on next, Mars or Venus. Which is better? On today's show, we are going to settle this question once and for all. It's a planetary smackdown. And we've invited two experts to debate the question. Representing Mars is Tanya Harrison, who's a fantastic friend of the pod, and you may remember her from season one, episode two. Tanya is a professional Martian who spent many years immersed in the rocks and robots of the Red Planet. She's worked in science and mission operations for NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Opportunity, Curiosity, and Perseverance rovers, and is now the Director of Strategic Science Initiatives for Planet Labs. Representing Venus, we have Joe O'Rourke. Joe is a planetary scientist at Arizona State University's School of Earth and Space Exploration. He served on NASA's Venus Exploration Analysis Group and on the panel for Venus for the National Academy's Planetary Science and Astrobiology Decadal Survey. This is the panel that sets the priorities and research strategies for space exploration in the coming decade. This is it. Mars or Venus, war or love. Get your popcorn and choose your sides. This is the Planetary Smackdown. Tanya Harrison, Joe O'Rourke, welcome to Mission Interplanetary. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So welcome to the Mars versus Venus Planetary Smackdown. Today's debate will decide which is the best planet to invest our exploration resources in. Tanya, you'll be representing Mars, and Joe, you are representing Venus. By coin flip, the first question is for you, Tanya. So here we go. Are you ready? I hope so. So Tanya, we've sent a lot of missions to Mars, an incredible amount of missions, actually. Most recently, obviously, the Perseverance rover with the Ingenuity helicopter. 
why on earth should we keep investing in exploring Mars? Surely we've done it to death by now. Well, that's the thing. Every time we send a new mission to Mars, we answer a lot of the questions we had before, but then it opens up a lot more questions because we're getting better data. We're learning what measurements we should be taking. We're making advancements in technology about things that we can actually miniaturize to put on a rover platform. We're getting better at our landing capabilities so we can land in more ambitious sites than we could before. So it might seem like Mars is overdone because it's easier for us to get there than almost anywhere else in the solar system. But we haven't answered all the questions that we want to answer about Mars just yet. Well, and Tanya, can you just sort of step back and sort of paint a picture of where are we in understanding Mars and how close are we to sending people? So we've been building these pieces together from trying to figure out, you know, where was the water on Mars? And so we answered that with like Pathfinder and Spirit and Opportunity. And then we took that to the next level with Curiosity, looking for signs of habitability. So was that water something where life could have survived when it was there? And then with Perseverance, now we're looking for signs of ancient life. So was Mars back when it was warm and wet something where life could have survived? And we're figuring out a lot of information about like the distribution of water and ice that humans could use for drinking water, creating a breathable atmosphere inside of a habitat, learning ways to actually take in carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and rip it up to make breathable oxygen and rocket fuel to come home from Mars someday. So I, I think we're really, really close to being able to send humans. It's not going to be a fun trip there or, you know, this luxury vacation while you're there, but we we have a lot of the technology we need to be able to at least go there and say we did it and maybe do a little bit more science than we've been able to do with the rovers and the landers so far. Do you want to put a date on it? Oh, a date. A date. <laughs> I I would love, I feel like SpaceX will do it sooner than we all expect. Like I would say in the next 10 years, we might see a human on Mars. So with that in mind, and I, I love having a big picture like that, Joe, there's literally no chance that very soon we'll be sending people to establish a base on Venus. So why are we going to invest in exploring it? Why Venus? Venus is scientifically the most important planet in our solar system to study because our ignorance about Venus is astonishing. Uh, we know so little just about the Venus, Mars people I... or everyone. Is everyone ignorant about <laughs> just, Venus or just the Mars people? We are, or especially me. And so I can tell you that uh, I can claim that Venus had oceans on its surface up until a billion years ago. I can claim that the clouds of Venus currently host microbial life, which could be the, the main feature you see when you observe Venus in the ultraviolet. And we know so little about Venus that you can't immediately disprove those astonishing claims. So Venus is interesting because if we want to build scientific theories for understanding Earth-sized or Venus-sized planets in general, if we don't understand why Earth and Venus are so different and when they became so different on their surfaces, then we can't say we know anything scientific about rocky planets at all. I, I love this this idea that Venus is a black box, therefore we could imagine anything in it, therefore we've got to go and open the box. <laughs> well, it's a pretty hot black box. It is a pretty hot black box, yes. Yeah. Not at altitude. <laughs> Not in the clouds. It's nice oh, room oh. temperature, just a little sulfuric acid. Just a little balmy. We still need a jacket, that, there's going to be great. a breeze. How, how could we be thinking of sending humans to a place that is in a way so 
you know, not habitable, and yet we call it the evil twin of Earth. Yeah, I mean, uh, for humans, Mars isn't a great place to be. You can't survive unshielded on the surface of Mars for more than, what, a few minutes. But metal um, won't melt on the surface of Mars. That's like, true. It's a Most little more habitable than, than Venus. <laughs> definitely, definitely. But not, not in the clouds, apparently. <laughs> no one but my worst enemy should go down to the surface. Uh, but yeah, in the clouds, you could survive and be happy. Uh, so if we if we truly want to expand our, our human reach across the solar system, then yeah, we can set up shop in Venus for sure. So one, one Venus day is the same as like 220 something Earth days. But then they keep talking about how like a spacecraft has only lived like an hour on its way down to Venus. Is that a Venus hour or an Earth hour? I need to know. <laughs> Earth hours, yes. It takes a few Earth hours to descend through the atmosphere. It's like falling through an ocean because the pressures are so high. And then once you're on the surface, if you have a, a big steel, like a bathysphere, uh, it takes about an hour for all the heat to leak into your soft, vulnerable electronic innards and kill your mission. Uh, but scientists are working on technology that would allow landers to survive indefinitely on Venus. Some folks at NASA Glenn have a tech demo that uh, they think in the next decade could survive for a few Earth months. That's pretty amazing. How hot is it? Yes, if I say the exact number, I'm probably going to be uh, humiliatingly wrong, but it's hot enough indeed to, to melt lead. And the surface right. pressure is about 93 times what Earth's atmospheric surface pressure is. So, so we've had all this bad news, right? But the good news is that it's a, it's a storytelling planet, right? Absolutely. It it was like the Earth, and yet it took a different turn. And and hopefully we're going to learn what it can teach us about our planet, right? I think so. And we're discovering uh, hundreds of thousands of exoplanets orbiting distant stars. And with our present technology, we have no way of distinguishing an exo-Earth from an exo-Venus based on the measurements we can currently make. One story about Venus is that it experienced a climactic catastrophe. Venus and Earth might have formed in very similar ways. So if you traveled back in time four and a half billion years, you would find two planets in our solar system that look like blue marbles. But the thought is that because Venus is close to the sun, as the sun grew brighter and brighter over billions of years, eventually Venus just got too much sunlight and it was pushed into this hellish climatic state where all of the oceans boiled, all of the hydrogen was ripped away into space, and Venus was, was left with its sweltering carbon dioxide rich atmosphere, a hugely exaggerated version of what people are doing to our own atmosphere here on Earth. And so by figuring out if Venus truly had a habitable past, we might learn if Earth is special or if all rocky planets that are made out of the same stuff as Earth and Venus tend to start off with water and land and maybe even life. And understanding the, the evolution of Venus can tell us sort of how precarious our own habitable climate is and what sort of factors could push our surface away from being a nice place to live. That's pretty compelling. And I, I want to bring Tanya into this. I, Tanya, thinking about exoplanets, can we learn just as much from Mars about interpreting exoplanet data as we can from Venus? Or is this a slam dunk for Venus? I think it's giving us two different end members, right? We've got one option for Earth where it becomes this hellscape from climate change. And then we have another end member where it becomes a frozen wasteland. So which one of these is the Earth going to turn into? Oh, it's the fork. Which which fork are we going to go down? Which one is more preferable? Do you want to freeze or do you want to boil? <laughs> or neither. <laughs> I also want to get back to this idea of life, because it seems like with 
Mars tenure, we're talking about finding evidence of existence of ancient life. Whereas, Joe, you seem to be dropping little hints that actually we might find existing life. Is that just fantasy to try and get those grants, or is that a possible reality? Yeah. uh, Last year, uh, some scientists reported they detected phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus, which is a gas that is only known to be produced by living organisms like penguins and badgers or the microbes that live within their guts on Earth. I was was just about to say, so penguins and badgers on Venus. But did those results also get refuted very quickly after that was announced? <laughs> you know, the the, the initial team uh, is not letting go of uh, the claim that they found phosphine. So I personally, I'll, I'll share some inflammatory opinions about Mars, but uh, I won't take a side on any Venus, Venus-centric debates here. But yeah, but again, <laughs> I think it's possible it's still, the phosphine still exists for sure. But yeah, so it could be a biosignature, and a lot of people claim that's evidence of, of life. And that, that even before phosphine gas was discovered, uh, folks who are really optimistic about the potential for life existing on Venus today have used the fact that when we look at Venus in the ultraviolet, there are these huge dark patches in the clouds, places where UV is being absorbed. And we don't know what is doing the absorbing. It could be some abiotic photochemical process, um, but also, of course, on Earth, plants and things use UV light for photosynthesis for energy. So again, we know so little about the abiotic processes in the Venus atmosphere that we can't immediately exclude claims that life is explaining many of our observations. So we've been tricked by this before on Mars, too. Like with Viking, we had the labeled release experiment where originally the initial results, we didn't have any way to explain what we saw other than, oh, this has to be some kind of biological chemistry going on. And then what it actually taught us was, oh, there's a reaction that we didn't know existed with this stuff called perchlorates that we now know are all over Mars. And so, I mean, you still have a couple people from the Viking team that are like, no, it was life. And we incinerated it with this experiment because we did it wrong and we just didn't know how to go about it. And, but now we know because we've been able to do it on earth. So it's interesting that the search for life is not finding life in these places, but it's teaching us more about the way that geology works. And in the case of Venus, atmospheric chemistry, if it isn't life that's producing this thing that we only know on Earth can be formed from life. One thing strikes me here, whether or not there is true evidence for life on Venus, um, we've learned from Mars, it seems, it takes a long time to get there. Tanya, just say a little bit about sort of how slow progress has been with Mars to try and take those steps towards seeing evidence of past life because it's taken forever. It has, but a lot of that has been thanks to budget cuts and mission failures and changes in presidents who decide they don't want to go to Mars anymore, they want to go to an asteroid, or they want to go to the moon. Well, now they've got Venus as well. Yeah, you know, (laughs) Venus gets all the glory right now. And, you know, it's okay. Venus should get its day. Other scientists need some data. But, you know... We're in the middle of answering all these questions about Mars. We're we're like so close to getting these samples. Well, in the in the relative sense, we're so close to getting these samples back ten years from now from Perseverance. Uh, and there's people there's people here on Earth that are just like chopping at the bit to get that data because we have no physical samples from a place where we know where they came from. We have Martian meteorites, but they're almost as useful as walking outside and picking up a random rock off the street and being like, I'm going to tell you the whole history of Earth from this one random rock, but you don't know where it came from. Um, So now that we have these things that will actually tell us, like we know where on Mars they came from, we can answer the questions. But it's going to, it's going to take 10 years for like this fetch rover to go and pick up the samples and then send it back on a little rocket and come back to Earth. And we still got to figure out all the mechanics on how to actually do that because we've never done it before. 
Hey, Joe, could you talk about the new, I, I know we the administration has named new vision, missions to Venus. And could you talk about what's great about them and, and what you wish was happening? Yeah, absolutely. So the two NASA missions are called Veritas and Da Vinci. They are highly complementary, synergistic, so it's great that they were both selected. Veritas is a orbiter that will make exquisite maps of the surface geology of Venus using radar, and it will also study the composition of the rocks on the surface, the chemical composition, using an infrared camera that is carefully designed to observe at the few infrared wavelengths where you can actually see through the atmosphere down to the surface. And then Da Vinci is an atmospheric probe that will get dropped off and it will take exquisite atmospheric chemistry measurements as it spends a few hours descending to the surface. And what I'm really excited about regarding Da Vinci is that when it gets really close to the surface, it will take images that will have a spatial resolution of only a few meters better than what we'll get from orbit. And it will allow us to do a human-scale geology of one very special region on Venus called Alpha Regio, which is thought maybe to be an analog of a continent on Earth. So switching this up a little bit, I want to come back to you, Tanya, and ask you, why shouldn't we be exploring Venus? This all actually sounds pretty exciting stuff. Why not just ditch all the Mars stuff and go 100% in with Venus? I think it depends on what your goals are, right? Like if you want to study a planet where there might be a place that you can live on the surface today or a place where there might be some life just below the surface today, and you want to understand a place that used to, like we know used to be very Earth-like. We have so much evidence of this, whereas Venus has kind of resurfaced itself in a way that anything that happened but before like 500 million years ago is kind of a mystery. And we might not ever be able to answer that question. On Mars, we can answer the questions of what happened up to 4 billion years ago. So we have a lot more context for Mars itself, but also Earth in the context of Mars in the history of the solar system. And Venus is just like, over there melting, resurfacing itself. And, you know, not, I don't know. It's not quite as exciting if I can't walk on the surface as a geologist. Interesting. So Joe, Um, now it's your turn. No, why not keep exploring Mars? And the reason, you know, we ask you guys in this way, I mean, you know, each of you so much about what's amazing about your goals and your vision, but also what the skeletons are about why it might be better to do something else. Yeah, I'll share an inflammatory opinion that will get me denied tenure here at ASU. And that's, uh, Tanya earlier said that she was extremely optimistic about the uh, future of human spaceflight to Mars. And I I think predicted that uh, maybe we'll get surprised by the revolutions in technology that are currently underway. And we could see uh, people on Mars in 10 years, or at least a, a feasible timeline in that time frame. And so I think Mars's greatest strength, that it's a compelling desti- destination for human spaceflight, is also its greatest weakness in terms of uh, sending new planetary exploration, robotic exploration missions to Mars. The NASA Planetary Science Division is currently spending a lot of its resources to collect a few pounds of samples from Mars. But the first human mission to Mars is going to return an order of magnitude more samples and will be collected by people who are... Uh, many orders of magnitude more capable than even the the best robot that we've ever sent to Mars. So my question for Mars people is always, if we, if we think that humans will explore Mars, why are we spending such a huge fraction of our planetary robotic exploration budget to do something that humans will soon do even better? 
shouldn't we just take a step back and, and let the humans do the work? So, so let me just get this straight. You're saying ditch the robots, ditch the rovers, get humans there, and with all the gazillion dollars we save, we'll send robots elsewhere, correct? Yes, I'm saying if you support extensive robotic exploration about Mars, you're revealing a bit of pessimism about the human <laughs> exploration of Mars. Or maybe I'm just completely full of it. <laughs> I agree with this in a sense, uh, I mean, in a lot of it. I think we have reached the point where we know so much about Mars, we're not going to get that next revolutionary step in understanding without sending humans. What we know about Mars right now is so different from what we thought Mars was in the 70s after the we got there with Viking. But we haven't had that like next huge leap between, say, the Mars we thought we knew from the early days of the Mars Exploration Rover's mission and today. We're filling in little pieces. But I think the second a human steps on the surface, picks up a rock, and just can look around in context with a human brain, 25,000 things we thought we knew about Mars will instantly be proven wrong. And then you also have this commercial aspect. And I might be biased since I am now in the commercial space sector, but if you think about what SpaceX was, 10 years ago compared to what they are today, no one would have believed you 10 years ago if you had said SpaceX is going to be launching and landing boosters every single week. They will have launched humans back to the space station for the first time since the space shuttle was retired. Like people would have laughed at you. So this is why I try to have, I, I kind of have a lot of confidence in how far they're going to go because they've accomplished so much in the last 10 years. And this ties into what Joe was saying about how the, the missions that we have right now for Stanford Return on Mars are going to re return a few kilograms of rocks. I Now that I don't work on the rovers anymore, I can say <laughs> I think it's a massive waste of money to spend $2.5 billion to collect a few kilograms of rocks when we could be collaborating with SpaceX to bring back a few metric tons of rocks on Starship. It just seems like there could be some better collaboration between the commercial sector and NASA to accomplish goals that we all have together rather than trying to do these things separately and like not being the most efficient with all the different projects that are going on. So so this is taking us down a tangent. And, and Tanya, I'm actually very disappointed that you're actually now arguing Joe's point here. But putting that aside, <laughs> th this seems to be really important. And it, and it feels like the way we've done planetary science in the past, sort of big government spending, um, has somewhat sidelined the industrial sector. And now we're seeing a rebalancing of that with SpaceX. But there is still this feeling that the real science is done by government scientists and not by these commercial enterprises. Do we need to break that, that set of assumptions? I think so. The, the problem is there's no commercial incentive for science a lot of the time, right? So if you don't have something that's there to sustain the business model, right? unless you just happen to be a billionaire like Elon, who's like, well, I have other projects to fund my dream of going to Mars. But, but of course, how, how that worked on, on Earth um, was or has been that um, companies did science that actually led to practical applications. So you've got this mass, this wealth of applied science that's done here that really pushes the boundaries. Um, do we need to be embracing that more with planetary science? Because when you think about applied science, there usually is an endpoint where you can actually use that new knowledge. But I mean, things like is there life on Venus are, are sort of the definition of high risk, high impact, because maybe you'll find it's just some obscure iron, sulfur, oxygen reaction or something, but maybe you find life on another planet. 
And so the government, NASA especially, if you propose a mission to them, you have to give them science objectives that you promise to achieve. But maybe there's more room in the private sector to, to take a little gamble, send something small, focused, relatively inexpensive, and maybe discover something great. So I think, uh, like Tanya is saying, I again, am now in the position of totally agreeing with her. <laughs> 2020 and 2021 were horrible years in many respects. But in terms of what NASA has done, what commercial companies have done, SpaceX, Tanya's company, Planet, it's really just ignited a huge amount of optimism in me about the future of our capabilities in space. And so I think uh, there's going to be a lot more private public partnerships in, in science and in other forms of exploration. So what Joe is saying is that you want a constellation of weather monitoring CubeSats at Venus, right? I, I know a company that can sell you some. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> So, so before we get to the point where this just becomes a love fest and you're all agreeing rather than disagreeing, I, I think, Katie, we need to talk about sort of who comes out tops here. I must confess, after this, I think I'm more of a Venus guy. Andrew, I thought we were friends. I'm <laughs> you know, so offended right now. <laughs> you know, I'm so sorry, Tanya. Sometimes these things have just got to be said. We know the thing is like going to Mars. I mean, it is going to be the first place that people go. So we have yep. to keep that steady progress. And I think really at the end of the day, the, the thing that we all would love to see are missions everywhere because there's so much left to learn about our solar system. And I don't think that we should explore Mars at the cost of exploring other places. I would love to see more missions to Venus and you know, I would love to see other planets get their day in the sun as well. So hopefully as the cost of these things come down and, and we learn how to do things better, we can afford to send more missions everywhere and everybody gets data. And I think that's such a wonderful place to end. So not only are we looking at a win-win in terms of where we explore, but also how we explore with all of humankind doing this together and actually benefiting it from it together. Joe O'Rourke, Tanya Harrison, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. On Mission Interplanetary, we can't show you what space looks like. But we can share what space sounds like. This is Sounds of Space. you think that was? I'm not sure which, okay, but either Mars or Venus has a symphony orchestra. You'd think it was one of the two, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, in whichever one it was, Mars or Venus, I'm going to vote for them, okay, because I want to arrive on that planet and hear a symphony Okay, like but you, you know, you've, you've got to commit, Mars or Venus. Well, I think if the orchestras from the Earth were going to migrate, I think Mars is just going to be the closest place. And that would make sense. That would make sense. Of course, you're absolutely wrong. Oh, sorry. Rats. 
That Shocking. was actually a duet of space data from the NASA Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Really? Domenico Vincenazza from Xi'an, the European Data Network, drew 36 years of data, specifically proton counts from the cosmic ray detectors from the two spacecraft. The music is composed from 320,000 measurements taken from each of the voyagers at one-hour intervals. Vincenazza converted these data into waveforms, synchronized each measurement taken at the same point in time, and used different groups of instruments to represent each of the voyagers. As he says, analyzing the melody is exactly the same as looking at data in a spreadsheet, but using the ear. The information content is exactly the same, represented by regularities, patterns, changes, trends, and peaks. The result is this rather beautiful Voyager duet. It was certainly amazingly beautiful. Do you remember the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 launches? Not specifically. I mean, I was about, I was, well, 17 or so. Well, yeah, I, I was I was a little younger. So it was back in 1977. <laughs> they actually both launched in the same year. And I must confess, I don't remember it from the time. But I absolutely remember all the excitement looking back, sort of oh, the late 70s and the early 80s, as we saw what these two spacecraft were doing, where they were going. And and now putting it all in context and looking back at you know the people who designed those missions, who thought about you know how do we design imp- instrumentation that could be tough enough to go that far and and send information back. And we're still listening to those data. It's amazing. I l- I love this uh, sounds of space. Let's listen to it again. for this week. We are so glad you joined us. Mission Interplanetary is produced by Lance Garabi. Our sound designer and engineer is Steven Christensen. Our music was composed by Mario Iniguez. Remember to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter and send us a tweet at at ii underscore asu. Visit our website at missioninterplanetary.com and do recommend us to your friends. Mission Interplanetary is a production of Arizona State University's Interplanetary Initiative. We'll be back next week asking the big questions about space exploration. The future is interplanetary. We'll see you there.